The second reading is from Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 to 7. What I am saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Good morning, everyone. How are we doing? We're coping. It's a bit cold in here, I know, but, you know, get through it. It's going to be okay. Um, if you would like a Bible, there's a bunch on the table over there. We're going to be, for the most part, in our first reading in Colossians, uh, but you might want to have a finger in Galatians as well. Uh, but it will be up on the, up on the screen um, as well, so take, make the most of that. Uh, before we dig into God's Word, let's pray together. Gracious God, uh, we thank you so much uh, for the wonder of the cross and for these last few weeks as we have explored its splendor. Uh, we pray, Lord, that today as we look at yet another angle, another mode, another splendor of your redemption uh, through Jesus' death, uh, that we would be again in awe of your grace and goodness uh, and we would be um, shown uh, the power that is at work in our lives through Jesus uh, to live changed and transformed lives. Uh, help us to be attentive, Lord. Help us to listen. Help us to obey. Uh, help us uh, to repent if needed. Amen. So, once again, we start with this. Jesus is a many-splendid person, and the cross is a many-splendid event. Uh, so far in this series, we have seen the splendor of substitution, that Jesus died in the place of sinners. And we've seen uh, the splendor of sacrifice, that Jesus died as a sacrifice to bring us closer to God. The splendor of redemption, Jesus died to set us free from slavery to sin. And last week, the splendor of justification, that Jesus died that we might be declared innocent by God before God. Today we gaze on yet another splendor of the cross that though we were God's enemies, Jesus died so that we might be reconciled to God and made his friends, and not just his friends, but his family. Uh, but as always, if we were to truly understand this splendor, then we need to start at the beginning. We have to start at the beginning of the story and work our way forward. So here are the three points that I'm going to hit. Uh, that we start as naturally hostile enemies of God. That we become, through Jesus, reconciled people. And then finally, we are adopted as God's children. So hostile enemies, reconciled people, adopted children. It's going to be up on the screen so you know where I'm at at all times. Uh, first, hostile enemies. Uh, there are three ways that we kind of relate to other people in our life, most generally. Uh, neutrally, positively, and negatively. So we relate to some people neutrally. Uh, in this category would be acquaintances, uh, strangers, Twitter followers, 
around about half your Facebook friends. These are people who don't really care about you that much. Like, they, even if they know who you are, their feelings are neither really for nor against you and your life. So they're the neutral relationships. Positively, we can have people who are deliberately for us. Uh, they do care about us. They are our friends. They are our family. They are committed to our good. They're, they're positively and actively for us. And then negatively, there are people who are deliberately against us. They are actively opposed to us. They are hostile. They are enemies. King David describes what enemies are like in Psalm 41. He says, My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? <laughs> when one of them comes to see me, he speaks falsely while his heart gathers slander. Then he goes out and spreads it around. <laughs> All my enemies whisper together against me. They imagine the worst for me, saying, A vile disease has afflicted him. He will never get up from the place where he lies. Have you ever had an enemy like that? Has anyone said to you, uh, when will he die and his name perish? No, it happens to me all the time, but I don't know about you. <laughs> it's awful, is it? it even, don't say that, but having an enemy is really awful. Someone who you know works against you, who is slanderous, who does go around and say awful things about you, uh, whether true or untrue. Maybe even someone who has tried to physically harm you. It's terrible. It's, there's perhaps no worse feeling knowing that there's a relationship which is so bad that the other person is actively opposed and hostile to your life. It's awful. And it brings out the worst of emotions in us. It brings out uh, fear. It brings out deep sadness. At worst, it brings out anger and hatred towards the enemy. So it's all the more confronting then when we hear these words from the Apostle Paul in Colossians. Verse 21, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. It sounds a bit harsh, doesn't it? God's enemies... I mean, surely that's an overstatement. I mean, I think most people uh, in this world, when they think about God, would, would probably think that if not, they were, if not friends, maybe acquaintances. You know, God's like a kindly uncle who, you know, maybe you see at Christmas and Easter, yeah, not really in each other's lives, but there's no enmity here. We're, we're good. We're okay. But the Bible says that we are by nature enemies of God. It's tough to hear, isn't it? Not just acquaintances, not just neutral, actively hostile. It turns out that the same thing that David said about his enemies could also be said about us by God. Well, it can't, surely it can't be really that bad. Well, let's think about it for a second. Um, uh, one way of defining an enemy would be someone who is actively and consistently against someone else's interests, okay? An enemy is someone who is actively and consistently against someone else's interests. Now, ever since um, September 11, the awful day in 2001, uh, all Western nations, for the most part, have 
rallied against a common enemy that we call terrorism. Terrorism is awful. We, we hate it. We are against it. We fight against it. Why is it so terrible? Because it strikes at our very livelihoods. It strikes at our very hearts. Our security, our peace, our, our family, our way of life, this is what terrorism strikes at. And so we know that these enemies, these terrorists, must be stopped if we are to live peacefully and happily. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, were born as friends of God, right? They, they walked with him in the cool of the evening. They were, they were close relationally. They were intimate. They were personal. They were happy. They were friends. But on the day that Adam and Eve set themselves up against God, a shift happened. They became, in, in, in one manner of speaking, terrorists against God because they began to attack by the way they lived and the attitude of their hearts all the things that God holds dear. And of course, we as humans born uh, in that line share in that attitude. So remember what God is like to understand this. We need to know that God is good, absolutely perfect in holiness, righteous, good, utterly and completely. Everything that he does is good. Everything that he is is good. Human sin, on the other hand, is an attitude that rejects God's goodness. It pursues a way of life that is marked by selfishness and wickedness. Sin by nature is opposed to God's good purposes. So every human by nature opposes God. That means that we are not neutral. We are not acquaintances. We are God's enemies because we actively and consistently work against his good purposes. And God will not stand idly by. He must act to put a stop to sin and wickedness so that his good purposes can be fulfilled. So when we talk about this, we're saying that it's not only that we are hostile towards God as his enemies, we're actually also saying that God is hostile towards us. We are hostile towards God in our sin and wickedness and the way we rebel and, and work against his good purposes, and he is hostile towards us because of his anger and wrath poured out on sin. This mutual hostility stands as this impenetrable barrier between us and God. It's a problem. It's a big problem. It's a real problem. But sin does not only cause hostility between God and humans, it also breeds hostility uh, between humans. We set, up us, we set ourselves up against each other all the time. We say nasty things about each other. We sabotage each other. We get offended and give offense in return. In trying to get ahead, we quite happily put others behind. And this is the, host the environment of his hostility that everyone's born into. We learn it from, from, from uh, the time we are infants onwards. So there is hostility between us and God, yes, but there's also hostility between each other. And a quick glance through a newspaper will see that this is true. Even though, of course, humans are also capable of great acts of friendship and love, 
Nonetheless, this is all always marred. The history, story of human history shows that conflict isn't going away. Now, at this point, someone will say, hang on, hang on a sec. This is a pretty awful picture of God. He sounds like this really wrathful and angry, angry person. I, I thought God was love. And he is. He is both loving and wrathful. Both wrathful and loving. Isn't that a contradiction? Well, no. Uh, I remember once when I was about 10, um, my brother and I had been dropped off at church by my parents. They'd gone off somewhere for the day, I think. Uh, and we'd been left at church uh, with another family friend. And it was this family friend's job was to drop us home again after the service had finished. Uh, service finished, my brother and I were hanging around and, and getting a bit bored. And uh, the family friend was off talking to someone. And so uh, we decided it would be a really good idea uh, to walk home by ourselves says the 10-year-old and his 7-year-old brother. Uh, we live probably about 15k away, I reckon. We got a good halfway. <laughs> I thought that was pretty impressive, actually. Uh, halfway home, uh, suddenly the parents' car screeches up next to us. They get out and they grab us. Now, what do you think my parents' attitude was? Were they angry? Yes, <laughs> they were pretty mad. Why? Because not only had we broken their law, that we disobeyed their command to stay at church and had been dropped off by this family friend, but we had put ourselves in danger. I'd put my brother in danger by making that decision. They were angry and there would be discipline and we got in big trouble. There was also love. You see the relief on my parents' faces to see that we were safe, that we were found, we were okay, we would be okay. And their love uh, was clearly evident even in their discipline. So it's not a contradiction for, a, for God to be both uh, full of wrath but also full of love for his people. Wrath because sin is real and must be dealt with, and love because he made us and cares about us. The same way that my parents are demonstrated both right anger and also great and love for their precious children is the same way that God does as well. And so not unlike my parents, uh, God made the decision in the course of human history to come and find us who are lost and unreconciled and enemies and bring us home to bring about reconciliation. Leads me to my second point, reconciled people. Uh, I have uh, one really, really, really close friend. We've been friends forever, like 25 years. Uh, grew up together, still great friends. Um, we have had one fight in our entire friendship. But we really made up for the lack of fighting <laughs> in this one fight. It was a doozy. Uh, we, it was, yeah, words were said. <laughs> It was pretty awful, actually. Um, what happened was my friend had made a decision that I really disagreed with. I thought it was an unwise decision to make. And so I called him on it. We, I met up with him and we're like, I'm, 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 I reckon this is a really dumb thing. 
And this went from me kind of trying to call him out on something to an argument. The argument led to a fight. The fight led to us walking around Brunswick together in the middle of the night, uh, just kind of going at each other. It was awful. It ne we'd never done anything like this before. It was terrible. But 25 years of friendship are hard to knock over, so uh, we soon decided that we wanted to reconcile some days later. Uh, but how is it going to happen? Well, it wouldn't, it wouldn't work simply for us to come up to each other and go, well, I'm sorry that I shouted, um, okay, we're good now, kind of thing. That wouldn't really work. We, to really, truly reconcile, we had to get to the heart of why we fought in the first place. So that took some conversation, but eventually, um, over a coffee, we figured it out. And what I figured out was that his decision, I was upset about not just because I thought that um, it was an unwise thing, I was upset about it because actually I interpreted it as his rejection of me and my friendship. And he, in the meantime, interpreted my, um, my concern as an attack, an attack on his own ability uh, to make good decisions. And so this is what led to the conflict. So to deal with, uh, the re to really reconcile each other, we had to actually get to the heart of that. And I had to apologize for the way I acted and, and my motivation, attitude, and so did he as well. And then we were able to come together and fix things. Real reconciliation has to deal with the root of the hostility. And we've already seen that the root cause of the hostility between us and God is sin. The problem is that we are... Uh, is that, is that sin causes us to lead lives of wicked rebellion and sin causes God to respond in holy anger and so this conflict occurs. So if reconcilia reconciliation is ever to take place between God and humans, one side is going to have to take the initiative to get to the root of the problem and deal with it, to deal with sin. Of course, the problem is that we on our side are powerless to do anything about this. We're, we're too trapped, we're too enslaved, we're too um, influenced by, by sin to take the, the first steps towards peace. So if there was to be peace, God would have to initiate it. And that's exactly what he did. Our passage in Colossians not only pronounces the root of the problem that we're enemies of God in thought and deed, it also announces the solution. Uh, look at chapter 1. Uh, from verse 15, we see uh, it starts talking about Jesus, how Jesus is the, the firstborn of creation, the one who all things is, is made through and for, who unites all things. And then in verses, uh, verse 18, we see that Jesus then is also uh, the head of the new creation, He's the first to rise from the dead, the, the first to be resurrected, and the head of the church, the new community of God. But hang on, we seem to have missed a step, don't we? But it's almost like the before and after shot in a, in a cooking show. You know, here's, here's a new creation I prepared earlier. Uh, we seem to have missed a step. It's gone from one thing at the beginning to one thing at the end. But then Paul fills it in in verses 19 to 20. Uh, for he says... For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is God's making the first move to reconcile. The God 
who binds up all the universe in himself, makes the first move to restore his fractured creation through reconciliation. And how would he do that? By first reconciling with the ones who did the fracturing. He would reconcile with sinful humanity through the blood of Jesus shed on the cross. Let's go from 21 again. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. To understand this properly, we have to go back to Jesus' life. And remember that Jesus lived a perfect life without sin. And part of that perfection was that he had a perfect relationship with his Father. There was perfect intimacy with them. He spent countless hours in prayer, communing with his Father with complete and utter joy. They, they knew each other's wills. They, they knew each other like the closest of friends, the closest of family relationships, and yet even more so because this is God we're talking about. And it was returned, this relationship, by the Father. Remember that when Jesus was baptized, the voice comes from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. But this relationship was going to change drastically because remember Jesus had a mission he was there to reconcile these two parties, to, to bring about peace. And to do that, he had to deal with sin. We've already talked at length about how he did that over the last few weeks. He, he took the place of sinful humanity. For the enslaved, he became like one enslaved. For the guilty, he became guilty. For the sinful, he became sin for us. Now for God's enemies, Jesus would become like an enemy. Remember that as he moves towards the cross, he experienced hostility from other humans. People hated him, persecuted him, eventually killed him. Even his closest friends deserted him on that last day. Even Peter, his best friend, denied him three times saying, I never knew the man. He experienced every bit of interhuman hostility that we could experience. But also much more, he experienced the hostility we have from God. Remember, he goes to the cross and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Using a term God for the first time instead of Father to show that in this one moment, the Son of God has become like an orphan. Not because the Father died, but because the bond between them did. The one who in whom the whole universe is bound up, was torn and fractured, nailed and stabbed, estranged, alienated, alone. And all the hostility of God, his wrath, his anger, poured down upon the sun as the sky was blackened. And that's how the barrier was taken away. The root cause was dealt with. The hostility was removed. Sin was made an end of. By his death, we are reconciled to God. 1 Peter says it this way. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? To bring you to God. And of course, none of this would be true if Jesus had stayed dead. Because if that's true, he would still be 
and the wrath, still be under hostility, uh, but he is risen. And by his faith, by, and by faith we are joined to him. What is his has now become ours. When the father, what the Father said of him still stands, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. He sits at the right hand of the Father as King. But now in Jesus, God says the same of us who believe in him. You are my beloved children. With you, I am well pleased because of what he did. The dividing wall is torn down. Reconciliation has been achieved. Enemies have become friends, but not just friends. Adopted children. My final point. If you've been part of church for a while, uh, you will know that I really insist on calling you guys family. I insist on calling you brothers and sisters. And not just because it's a nice thing to say, not just because it kind of shows that we're a tight community. I say it because it's true. It's true in a way that goes beyond mere friendship. As Christians, we are bound together more than just by common interests or even just by a shared fondness for each other. Reconciliation with God means that we have become friends of God, yes, but it goes further. One, uh, John 1 says that through belief in Jesus, now we have the right to become children of God. And if we are God's children, that means that God is our Father. And if God is our Father, then that means that we are brothers and sisters. It is true to say that we are family. Not necessarily biologically, through birth and through blood, but spiritually, also by blood, but by the blood of Jesus shed for us. In other words, we have been adopted. This is where we get to Galatians. Uh, chapter 4, verse 4 says, But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive adoption to sonship. Right, the implications of this are huge, but just as we draw to an end, let me just spell out three of them. First of all, being adopted as children means that we have intimacy with the Father. I remember um, a pastor telling a story of how he was mentoring a young, young leader, uh, and this young leader um, and the pastor would pray together quite a lot. And after a while of, of this prayer, um, the pastor noticed something in the way this young guy prayed. He noticed that when he addressed God, he would, he would call him Lord and he would call him God, but he'd never call him Father. And one day they were praying and, and this pastor just kind of stopped in the middle and said, hey, hang on, just, just hang on a second. I noticed you never refer to God as Father. What's, what's that about? And it soon came out that actually this guy uh, grew up in a military household and and his dad uh, treated him not, not so much like a father, but more as like a, command, a commander. <laughs> Have you ever seen The Sound of Music? Yeah, it's a bit like that uh, with the captain. And so it turned out that he couldn't bring himself to relate to God as a father who, who is affectionate towards him because his own father was never like that. Uh, another time I heard um, a, a really famous, actually, um, Christian speaker uh, pray um, from up the front on television, I think. And it really struck me how this guy prayed because uh, he did use the word Father, Father God particularly, but he used it constantly. 
It kind of went, uh, dear Father God, I just pray, Father God, that you would just come, Father God, and, and Father God, I just, yeah, we just want you here right now, Father God. And on and on and on for like six minutes, he must have said it like 83 times. And I reflected on this later. And I thought, why, why did he do that? Like, because, you know, our words are really convey meaning. And I think what it sounded like was that he needed to convince his father to listen. It wouldn't be enough just to say, father once he would have to repeat it as almost like a mantra if only i could just get this father to listen i've got to I've got to try i've got to convince him to give me my attention i don't know this guy's story and maybe i don't know what his relationship was like with his dad but it seemed to come across like that and this is not the type of relationship that we have with our heavenly father he is not like a captain or a commander who, who is related to us but with no real intimacy or relationship. He's also not a father who we have to try and convince to give us his attention. In Galatians says, uh, because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, a spirit who calls out Abba, Father. Abba is a Hebrew word. It basically translates as, as dad or daddy. It's a... It's a a term of intimacy, like what a small child would use with their father. It's a sort of term that we can use because it's a sort of relationship we have with him. We can come straight up to the God of the universe and say, Dad, and he'll listen. He doesn't need to be convinced. He'll listen. Like a child, we have total and complete access to him, his love, his affection, his wisdom and grace. It's ours by birthright. You know, I can't get through a sermon without quoting Tim Keller. And so here's the one for the day. Uh, Tim Keller puts it this way. The only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is his child. We have that kind of access. Our relationship with God as Father is one of the greatest things that we have as Christians. And to not enjoy it would be to miss out on the gospel itself. So we have intimacy with God as Father. We also have intimacy with each other as family. Uh, there's a popular quote uh, from, it's actually uh, from To Kill a Mockingbird, though I didn't know this. Uh, you'll recognize it. You can choose your friends, but you sure can't choose your family. And they're still kin to you no matter whether you acknowledge them or not. And it makes you look right silly when you don't. It's a great quote. Uh, you know, we are brothers and sisters whether you acknowledge it or not. We are kin. <laughs> and we should be thankful for it because it's fantastic. It means that no matter what your earthly family is like, you have a family that is being completely transformed by the Spirit of God. It's true that no matter what your own father is like, whether he is a great dad or not so good, you have a great father in heaven who is perfect. No matter what your own family is like, you have a family in the church that is being transformed and sanctified by the Spirit of God. The love that God himself shares with himself as Father, Son, Spirit is poured out into the family of God so that we get to share it with each other. A love that goes beyond biology, beyond race, beyond age, beyond stage. A love that goes beyond anything this world has to offer. A love that is committed, affectionate, joyful, compassionate, caring and kind. The family is designed to make you more and more like Jesus. And that's why throughout the New Testament, 
Paul and the other apostles keep continually say to one another each other, love one another, encourage one another, teach one another, even rebuke one another, warn one another. Nobody acts with this kind of love in our society, I don't think. And so how can we? Because God has poured his love into our hearts by the Spirit, and the Spirit is what helps us to be this sort of family. Of course, families get messy uh, and sinful people put into tight community with each other. When that happens, pretty soon the, 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 the not-so-good stuff tends to come to the surface very quickly. Uh, there's conflict, there's arguments, there's fights and offence. And yet it won't break the family, or it shouldn't. Because God has forgiven us and reconciled us, so we are given the tools necessary and the power to reconcile with each other. And we should do it. We must do it. When people go wrong and people get hurt, actually when we reconcile with each other, the gospel is made even more dear to us because we live it out. Maybe there's someone that you need to reconcile with. When you do that, it's actually for your good because God will use it powerfully. Okay, almost there. Finally, we have an inheritance as heirs. Uh, notice that the Galatians passage isn't particularly gender inclusive. Uh, it says that we have been adopted to what? Sons. So why sons, not sons and daughters? Uh, Paul is writing to men and women here. So he's, he's saying to men and women that you have been adopted as sons. That's a bit weird. What he's doing is uh, he's using a cultural reference because in those days, the person who got the inheritance was the firstborn son of the father. So Paul's making the point that because we have been all adopted, in a way, whether you're a man or a woman, you have been adopted as a firstborn son with Jesus. You share in his inheritance. You are all heirs of a glorious inheritance. What is an inheritance? It's God himself. When you become a Christian, you get God. You get the Spirit. God of all goodness is poured into your life through the Spirit by the Son. The Spirit is working to give you a sort of joy and relationship and knowledge of God that is the, the, the treasure beyond price. But it, doesn't, uh, it, it starts here, this inheritance, but it goes and is ultimately completed when Jesus comes again and restores and redeems not only this whole world and the cosmos, but our bodies and makes them new. So we get to enjoy the privileges of being God's children forever. So as children, we get intimacy with the Father, intimacy with each other, and heirs of a, with a glorious inheritance. All this because Jesus Christ was alienated and rejected so that we might become reconciled and adopted. So family, let's not live like strangers, either of God or each other, because if you have believed in him, by faith you have been joined to God and joined to one another. At, this, uh, at Inner West Church, let's, let's live like family because we are family. Let's treat our brothers and sisters well. Let's reconcile. Let's forgive. And let's constantly go back to the source of all goodness, the God, and figure out what it means to live lives knowing that we are reconciled to him. He is not far from us. He is near. He is not, uh, he is not cold towards us. He is affectionate. He is not hostile towards us. He is loving. Amen.